Thank you for joining us. You're listening to the sermon ministry of the United Advent Christian Church in Wilmington, North Carolina, where we strive to love God with all that is in us, love our neighbor as ourselves, and make disciples of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. I hope you're blessed by this week's message. Please feel free to reach out to us if we can help you or serve you in any way. Thanks again. I want to encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, and uh, I have a lot to, uh, to cover and a little time to do it, so we're going to jump right in. Um, rather than uh, reading the passage as a whole, uh, we're going we're gonna to jump right into the message this morning, and uh, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer, and, and then we'll get right into it. Um, Lord, we thank you for this day, and, and uh, we thank you that you are a sent God. We think about that. Our God is a missionary. You left the comfort of heaven. You came to earth. You lived in a, a humble, lowly manger. You were homeless your whole life. You relied on the generosity of others. And what you lacked in worldly wealth, you brought tremendous riches to this world. We think about what Paul says. You became poor so that we might become eternally rich. You took on the weight of our sin on the cross so that we could experience the blessing of forgiveness. You, you, uh, you were struck down. You suffered death so that we could be recipients of the glorious blessing of everlasting life. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts this morning for the next few minutes that, that as we look at your word, you would inspire us and motivate us to be a sent people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about missional community. Uh, we've been looking at community over the last few weeks. Um, I want to talk to you about being missional. And, and uh, the, the word missional has become a popular phrase in, in, uh, in ministry circles. Um, it's, it's been adapted by a lot of uh, ministry leaders. Um, but th- I just want you to think about at, at the most basic level, the word missional, what does it mean? It means to be sent. It means to reflect the missionary heart of God. And I want you to remember that in the Great Commission... There's one command, one central command in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples. And the outworking of that command happens, uh, you know, if you look at the, the passage literally, the Great Commission, as you are going, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Jesus calls us not just to make converts, but that we are to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that's a disciple, and we are to uh, leave that stamp, that impression on the lives of others, that they would become disciples. And so the movement of God is that we would become disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. And if we do this, we unleash a movement of multiplication. And it's the power of exponential growth. And far, for far too long, we... We've settled for adding simple addition when it comes to the kingdom of God. So the call of God this morning is that we become missionaries. We become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we leave the impression of Christ on the world around us. 
Think about Jesus' mission. Jesus summed up his mission in, in just a few words. What was his mission? He said, I have come to save and seek those who are lost. That's the purpose of, of Jesus' coming. Jesus was a missionary at heart. We serve a God who was sent. And, and in Acts 17, we pick up with Paul. And there's going to be so much that we can't pay attention to this morning. So I would encourage you to take a few notes and then spend some time this week looking at this passage. There's really a lot there. But Paul goes to the Areopagus, and that's a mouthful. <laughs> It's a, it's a place otherwise known as Mars Hill. Mars Hill. He is in the city of Athens, and he goes to Mars Hill. And that's where we're going to pick up in the passage in Acts seventeen sixteen. It says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So I want you to notice... Very first observation is that Paul is in Athens. Paul is waiting for his companions. And he says, how can I redeem the time? <laughs> so he goes to this place called the Areopagus. And Mars Hill, now uh, the, the, the Greek culture was, was um, really put an emphasis on learning. I think our culture has probably put an emphasis on being entertained but if I could sum up what Mars Hill was to Greece, what Athens was to Greece, imagine New York City, Hollywood, and Harvard. You smash them all together, and that's, this, this was, the, this was the, the spring of culture in Greek society. And Paul goes to Athens, and, and uh, a couple things that we'll notice, uh, he spends part of the day in the synagogue, Paul's a Jew, right? Those are his homies. He goes to the synagogue and he connects with the other Jews in the synagogue and he starts telling them about the promised Messiah. And then Paul has a very different approach. He goes to Mars Hill. He goes to the Areopagus and he goes before the scholars of the day and, and he proclaims Christ as the God that they haven't discovered yet. But uh, before Paul is in Athens, we pick up, if, we, if you just, a cursory reading, cursory reading of the book of Acts, he's in place, places like Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Rome. One of the things that I realize as I studied the life of the Apostle Paul is that he consistently put himself in places where he would encounter lots of lost people. These were the booming metropolises of the day. These were the crossroads, not only of the, the Roman roads, which were an advancement in, in modern society at the time, but they, these were, the, these were the, the birthplaces of culture. And Paul goes from city to city. The, the, the strategy of New Testament believers was urban and missional. And I want you to notice where Paul goes. That's kind of the... First thing that we need to observe in the text this morning. I want to tell you folks, staying was never meant to be a value in the church. We like to stay. We're really good at staying. Right? Oh Lord, don't, 
don't move me in a new direction. Don't, don't push me out of my comfort zone. I don't want to go talk to those people. We're, we're really, I, I'm real happy here in my comfort zone. But I want you to notice that's not the pattern of believers in the New Testament. That's not the command of Jesus in the Great Commission. He assumes that we're going. As you are going, make disciples. Do it along the way. Just like Paul, he's waiting for his friends. He redeems the time. He says, you know what? I'm going to use the next few minutes or the next few hours to advance the agenda of God's kingdom. He didn't stay. He, he went. <laughs> the first thing that we see in the life of Paul is that is this word go. And, and, and maybe uh, in, in the margins of your Bible, if you want to write it next to verse 16, the first step is, is the word go, okay? I, I want to take a little moment. This is not traditional sermon content, but I was doing some studying before I ever came to candidate here as pastor. I was, I was, uh, I was sitting in my office back in, um, in, my, in my last pastorate, and I, I was thinking about the prospect of coming and candidating here. I was thinking about how, and I know as I spoke to some people, they said, you know, it was, it was, it was almost a, a shock for us to hear our church mentioned as, as an urban church, as a metropolitan church. But, and, and I know this, this church was way out in the country when it was first built, but the city has followed us, and, and they're all around us. But I'm, I'm gonna, I want to try to convince you for a moment, I know that puts a hindrance on your life day in and day out. My, my wife had a back porch, a screened-in porch, and that was her, her place. And she would just go there to escape from the, the cares of this world. And now her back porch, she feels like she has a million set of eyeballs looking down on her. It is what it is. We're all kind of inconvenienced by urban growth. We're all feeling that. But I want to encourage us to see that the, 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 uh, the pattern of believers in the New Testament was to go from urban center to urban center to urban center. So if, if we want to make an impact for the kingdom of God, we're right where we should be, according to Paul in the New Testament. The first Advent Christians, I, I want to put up a slide. The first Advent Christians, um, some of the first churches that sprang up in our, in our young denomination in the mid-1800s, uh, the Advent Christian denomination was founded af- at, at the uh, conclusion at the end of the Civil War. I, I told somebody, I think that's why we're so good at fighting. But, uh, um, but that's an aside. Um, but I, 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 uh, I called uh, somebody at headquarters, and I said, do you have a list of every church we've ever had historically? And she said, not only do I have a list, but Don Rutan sent me a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, and there was a list of every Avon Christian church there has ever been in the United States. And then there are little blocks, like 10-year blocks, and those blocks were shaded in for, for the years that that church was in existence. And, and my first takeaway is there are a lot of Avon Christian churches that are no more. They used to be, and they're no more. And some of you that have been involved in our denomination know that that's the truth. A lot of churches that we heard about historically, they're not, they're not in existence anymore. But another thing that I gleaned, I want you to look at all these churches that were in, and I, I, uh, I put a filter over this, and I started to look up how many of the cities that these churches were listed in had a population of 80,000 or greater. So I, I really took some time to look into this. 
And, and these were all the churches that used to be in urban areas that are no longer there. It blew me away that, that, that at one point there were seven, in the history of Wilmington, there were seven churches here that are no longer here. Um, but you see places like Birmingham, Alabama, Charleston, South Carolina, Charlotte, uh, Chattanooga, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Gainesville, Florida. Uh, that's a college town now, University of Florida. Gastonia, North Carolina, Huntsville, Alabama, Jacksonville, Florida, Jacksonville, North Carolina, Orlando, Memphis, Raleigh, Savannah, Tallahassee, Tampa. And then in addition to the churches that have closed, there were another 20 to 30 churches that were in, in, um, in historical decline. They're still open, but they're not what they used to be. And that was, that was eye-opening. And I, I started thinking about it, and I said, Lord, show me, show me some patterns here. What, what can I learn from this? And, um, and I was thinking about my present ministry context. I was in a rural pastorate. And one of the things that was obvious to me is that um, the makeup of the church and the makeup of the community was very similar. The, the church that I used to pastor was very reflective of the community around it. Not only racially, demographically, but also values. There wasn't, there wasn't a big gap. If you look at the next slide, um, this is not anything statistical, but I just want you to be able to visualize it. As, as time has gone on, the rate of change in rural uh, areas has, has not, not uh, gone on too quickly, okay? And so the rate of change in the church and the rate of change in the community is on a similar trajectory, and so there's not a big gap. But when we move into urban context, the rate of change in the community is way greater than the rate of change in the church. And so I think that's one of the answers as to why we have a lot of churches that have struggled historically in urban contexts. But it also drives home the point if our ultimate value is to, let's just go back to the way we used to do it, it's not going to work. It's, it's actually a, a more glaring problem in urban areas than it is uh, sometimes in rural areas. And, I, and I've seen this empirically. Like, we, we have 14 Avon Christian churches in Johnston County. There's 14 Avon Christian churches in a little city of Lenore. And, and then we have some major metropolitan areas in North Carolina, Georgia, there, we don't even have a single Advent Christian church. So I just want us to understand, and, and I, I know that was like talking shop, but I didn't have any other place to plug that in during the week, so I, I had to just stick it in my message. But indulge me for a second. But, what I, what, but I want you to catch something here. Our strategy, the way we've been doing it as a denomination, is not reflective of the New Testament strategy. And it's not just Advent Christians that have struggled Metropolitan churches in the United States, almost every mainline denomination, have seen decline. And so we have the exact opposite of what happened in the New Testament. Did you know, and I thought this was fascinating when I figured this out. This wasn't in my notes, so this is for free. (laughs) The word pagan... In, in, in New Testament time, did you know that the word pagan meant hick 
Hillbilly? So pagans became synonymous with hillbillies because the churches were, were flooding urban centers and they were making such an impact for the kingdom that the pagans couldn't stand it. And so they moved out to the sticks. Aren't we doing exactly the opposite today? People, we, we, you know, we call it flight, urban flight, but people are moving away from urban centers out, out to the fringes so that they can get away from the crime and the vice. And it is a little unsettling. I mean, somebody was just shot and killed at this Walmart the other day. We live in a broken world, and it's like in our face. But I want you to notice the strategy of Paul. I spent way longer on that point than I should have, but I wanted to drive home a point. I wanted to drive home a point. Notice the pattern of the New Testament church. So Paul, the first thing he does is he goes. <laughs> so you see the word go. I want you to see the word see. In Acts 17, 22, and 23, Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, and I want you to notice this word, maybe even highlight or underline it, I perceive, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, what do, what do we see again? I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So it doesn't, it's not just go and exist there, but, but look around you, see, observe what's happening in the community, the culture around you. Observe, interpret what's going on in the world around you. Um, a while back, and this, this might be a good sermon to go back to, but I, I preached a message on, on idolatry. And, uh, and, and if the more we understand the nature of idolatry, it, it would make us better missionaries in our own culture, but it actually makes us stronger believers in Christ because there are blind spots in our own lives. But, you know, it, it, one, of the, one of the things that's been amazing is as I've moved around the southeast, no two communities that I've ever lived in have been alike. I went from one rural pastorate to another rural pastorate, and those communities couldn't be more dissimilar. And, and this church has some similarities to some of the other um, Churches like, like my church in Augusta, the, the community is very similar in some respects, but in other respects is completely different. So we need to, we need to um, imagine God has plopped us down and we're not from here. That's hard for some of you. It's real easy for me, right? I'm not from here. I'm still figuring my, my way around, okay? But as, as I step into a, no, a new culture, a new community, I want to be observant. I want to see what are the things that people are pining for? What are the perceived needs that people have in their life? What are their hiccups? What are their hang-ups? Where are they struggling? Where do they need hope? What causes them to lack peace? In his book, Unceasing Worship, Harold Best um, talks about, in, in almost any context, if you listen well enough, you can hear people talk about some sort of functional heaven, something they're aspiring to do or be, some sort of functional hell, the pain of their current circumstance, and then some sort of functional savior. If you, if you ever look at a, um, a magazine, and it could be the self-magazine or um, 
you know, field and stream, on almost every magazine cover, they talk about some sort of functional hell, some sort of functional heaven, and if you read this article, we have good news for you. Every commercial is built around that. So, you know, advertising execs get this. They want to understand the people that they're aiming their advertisements at. We need to understand the people that we're aiming the message of the gospel at. So I want you to notice, not only does Paul go, he sees, and then, I love this next part, he feels. He feels. In Acts 17, 16, it says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked is a very significant word. He saw the city was full of idols, and he was moved deeply with compassion. He didn't become angry about it. He didn't rant on Facebook about it. He didn't condemn them. He offered them hope. Christians, we need to do a better job of being winsome. You know, what does 1 Peter say? It says, be prepared in and out of season to share the hope that we have. And what does Peter say? Do it with gentleness and respect. There's a reason he stuck that in there. I think sometimes we become so, and I am guilty as charged, we become so preoccupied with being right, we, fe- we forget to be compassionate, loving. But Paul is provoked, and, and I don't want you to misunderstand that word, but it actually means to be moved to compassion, to be moved to action. And we have two choices before us. We can either be moved to compassion or we can curse the darkness. And I think one of those is going to bear out more fruit eternally. Mark 6.34, it says that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Christ. You know, a great prayer would be, Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes to the needs to the problems, to the pains of people around me. That's hard. Sometimes we get tunnel vision and we we tune that stuff out. But built into that word, um, Paul was provoked. And and if if you unpack that word in the New Testament, it means to be moved to action. He was stirred. He wasn't just, he wasn't just upset about it. And so the final word is do. And you can write that somewhere in the margins between verse 17 and verse 33. And for the sake of time, I'm going to sum it up, okay? But I want you to notice what Paul does. He goes right into the heart of the Areopagus. We'll backtrack. Earlier that day, Paul goes into the synagogue, and as he's reasoning with Jews, who do you think he started with? Who do you think he started speaking about? It doesn't say... But almost every other time we see it recorded that Paul is speaking to Jews, very often he starts with Abraham, the father of the covenant. And then Paul brings it full circle and and he ends on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the author of a new and greater covenant. But that's not the starting point with Gentiles. So Paul goes into the Areopagus, and instead of starting with Abraham, you know where he starts? It doesn't say it explicitly, but... He starts with Zeus. 
He starts with the Greek gods. And we, we learned about some of those gods in, in our, our, you know, philosophy classes and, and world history classes, like in, in school growing up. And we, we heard about Zeus and, and, um, and Hermes and, and some of these uh, uh, Olympus, some of these Greek gods. Well, Paul goes straight to Zeus and he uses uh, popular teaching, popular sentiment, even, in, even poetry of the day. That would be like using song lyrics today to drive this piercing message. And then I want you to notice he observes, he observes a problem in that culture. He observes something that they're trying to do to fix the problem, the functional hell, the functional savior. He says, as I was walking along, I saw an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul takes the unknown God in this inscription. He says, I'm here to tell you about him today. God sent me to deliver the message. What you have been worshiping from afar, I'm I'm here to bring you up close to. The message of the gospel. And whereas Zeus has kind of admired the world from a, different, uh, from a distance. He's been a capricious God. You, you better be on your best behavior because he might just throw a lightning bolt down at you. Paul says, the God I'm here to tell you about today is a compassionate God. He didn't love us from a distance like that old Bette Midler song. He, he loved us up close. He came. He suffered he died. He rose again. You know, an effective missionary has to understand the culture, the people that they're ministering to. Some of the great, there, there's some great problems and then there's some funny stories. If you ever talk to a missionary because they went headlong into preaching the gospel and they didn't have an adequate understanding of the culture that they went to. Sometimes it's the very words that we use. There may not be a word for that in their culture. Or our word and their word don't mean anything near the same thing. But an effective missionary wouldn't just rush into a culture, begin applying the gospel without first understanding the people that he's ministering to. And that's what Paul does. He, He runs into the culture, but he understands the culture. He took the time to study it. He took the time to learn it. And and he put together a message of hope that they could understand that was in the language of the people, but it was also in the, the, the cultural language of the people. And I want you to know that God is calling you and I to do the same thing in this community. There, I, I, had, um, I, I pulled a little trick on you this morning. I got you all to sing a bar tune this morning. Did you know that? You were singing like a beer chugging song from the mid uh, 1500s. I pulled a fast one on you. Martin Luther wrote that great hymn of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he said, You know what? The music of the church today is kind of tired. People aren't connecting with it, they don't know the tune. He said, I heard a great tune down at the tavern, and I'm going to write this hymn, and I'm going to put it to that tune, and people will know it, and they will connect with it. I bet you never knew that. See, that's being missional. That's understanding 
Did Martin Luther change the message? No. That's a great hymn because it speaks about the, the finished work of Christ on, on the cross on our behalf and, and how we don't need to fear our enemy, the devil, and how God is in control of human history. It didn't change the message, but it sure changed the delivery method. And, you know, I don't even know what changes I want to press for yet, but I promise you I'm going to press for some changes here. Because I'm following this. I answer God's call. I'm here. I, I did the go step. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Charles is glad I'm here. But uh, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm walking around. I'm perceiving. I'm trying to learn not only my way around, but I'm trying to learn the way of these people. I'm trying to learn the church people. I'm trying to learn the community. I want to develop a sensitivity to the way people think and work here. And then, and then the next thing is that I'm going to work with our leadership to, to study what we're doing, the status quo, and are there any areas of what we're doing that aren't measuring up? I know I've already brought some changes, but I think some of the changes that we brought is we didn't have a choice, right? <laughs> I mean, this coronavirus has changed a lot. Think about that. Eight months ago, seems like, it seems like a different lifetime. And so I think, I think God said, you know what, church? You're not making the changes fast enough, so I'm going to give you some circumstances that would require you to. Our study in First Peter, those people are going through the same thing that you and I are going through. We really connect with it. Because they didn't have a choice because of per persecution, they were scattered to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. And the book of First Peter is written to these, these followers of Jesus to encourage them, to give them hope. God is in control. And he has a will and a plan and a purpose for our lives. So instead of worrying about obsessing about changing our circumstance, let's figure out how we can leverage it for the kingdom of God and to the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, your work in our lives. We thank you for going, or rather coming, to us. We thank you for seeing our need. We thank you for being moved to compassion. And we thank you for rushing into our lives to meet our greatest need. And it would be the height of selfishness for us to receive all that and yet turn around like that unmerciful servant and not be willing to extend that love, that generosity, that compassion, those good deeds to those around us. And so we, we thank you for stepping into our lives. We thank you that you are a sent God, and I pray that you would send us. You might even raise up some people here to do some amazing things um, in the furthest reaches of the earth. But, but, Lord, starting this afternoon and going into our Monday morning and throughout the remainder of the week, Lord, that we would just, we would just have eyes to see the needs of the people around us. And, and it, it, might just be, it might just be a smile. It might, just, it, might be, um, it might be a greeting, a word, a kind word, a kind deed. But use us to change the world around us. And, and I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that people would see the difference in us. And, and, and that would necessitate 
the questions that would follow, and they would ask us about the hope that we have. You presuppose it in your word. Help us to be ready to share our hope with a waiting world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.